people always are wondering, oh, if it's 80-20, you know, GP, LP split, it's a good deal. There's nothing to do with anything. Who cares if you're getting 80% of like zero if it's a bad deal? Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hey guys, today on the show, I interviewed an investor who surprisingly took a very unconventional path. Many investors start as a passive investor and then turn to syndication after getting some experience and track record, but our guest today did the exact opposite. He started as a syndicator, then decided to become a passive investor and invested alongside other syndicators. Let's hear his motives behind the surprising change and how he did it. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories, the show for passive investors where we talk about real estate investing. And today on the show, I'm hosting Lane Kawaka. Hey. <laughs> hey, how are you today? It's, uh, it's, it's early here in Hawaii. Good morning. <laughs> how early exactly is it? It's uh, six o'clock. I know it's uh, probably lunchtime for some people out there, but... <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, so for those of you who have not met Lane yet, Lane started his uh, venture in real estate investing back in 2009 after living on the road for five years as a construction supervisor. His first investment was an A-class property in Seattle, and he kept investing in real estate since then. When the market crashed and rebounded, actually, in 2012, Lane decided to convert his portfolio to secondary markets in order to avoid a negative cash flow. So I think uh, I think your background is very interesting, Lane. Uh, I think the story that you're going to tell today is uh, going to be not only informational and, and interesting, but also I, I think some investors can kind of learn of the way that you saw the situation and how you acted um, in order to to save your investments. All right, awesome. awesome. Yeah, so let's get started. Can you, um, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of your background? If there's anything that I missed on the intro that you think that our uh, that our um, listeners uh, would be interested in? Yeah, I mean, you know, I started out in 2007 is when I graduated college in engineering. And I, at, up to that point, it's pretty much the linear path, pretty boring. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, they are told, save money, go to school, get a good job, save right. money. Um, and that's what I did. And I saved my money to buy a primary residence to live in. But I just wasn't there all the time, like you mentioned. And I just started to rent it out. So I became an accidental landlord. So it was a class A rental in Seattle that was, I'd say it was bought it for like 350 at the time. Um, the rents were like 2200 
So nowhere near that 1% rent to value ratio that you need, but Hey, you know, it's a start. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people get started and you quickly, you know, that was when I started to read all the podcasts and uh, books and get educated. And I was, you know, I was like, I saw the cash flow coming in because the mortgage was $1,600. And to a young kid, that was a lot of beer money. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about CapEx or, you know, I had to pay $100 here and there for repairs. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was an A-class rental. And, um, you know, it was off and rolling. It was a good time to get started too. Mm-hmm. So um, that was kind of how things got started and, you know, for me. And how did you go from, how did you change your mindset from, you know, go to school, get a good job, save money to, hey, you know what, real estate might be the thing that I, you know, I can benefit from. How, how did you even start um, thinking about real estate? Um, I think, I think like, like, you know, everybody says you don't buy a house to live in, right? I mean, it's kind of that sage order advice. It's, um, I don't really believe that these days. I don't think that your primary residence is the best investment, but I stumbled upon this rental real estate thing. And, you know, I saw the money coming in and I saw how the, the tenant was t- paying down the mortgage and the, the, the tax benefits. And I think at the, the time, my first few years working, I mean, the company I work for was pretty horrible. I mean, very bad quality of life, but I, you know, I kind of understood it because I was like the new guy, and this was in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, ten, right after the recession. So you know, twenty year old kid with a, with a good job, you know, I can't complain. But in the back of my head, I was like, man, this sucks. This absolutely sucks. And I was lucky enough, lucky enough to come to that realization very early. And then I was like, wait, this real estate thing where I get a house and I rent it out for 2200 and I pay $1,600 mortgage, I have to do this again and again and again mm-hmm. in order to free myself from this day job. So all my efforts, my energy and, and focus went into, hey, how do I pick up more of these? How do I get better returns so that I in turn get away from this day job, which I absolutely despise at, at the time. You know, mm-hmm. because, you know, not only the job, but the people too, especially. Um, and I, I talk to a lot of people these days and there's usually some kind of turning point at their job, which, you know, usually comes at year 10 or 20. But for me, it was like year two or even year one, <laughs> maybe in the first six months. Who knows? That was probably one of the best things that, that ever happened to you, which is, which is great. Um and then you, so you made that switch. You decide to go into real estate. You buy an A class, an A class property, and then you continue, kind of, you know, buying properties from that point. Um, how how did he go for you? Yeah, I mean, I bought another duplex in Seattle, and I kind of got this concept of, hey, there's A class, B class, and C class rentals. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm still pretty new at this. I'm gonna go go after one of those B plus rentals. I think the numbers on that one were it rented for $2,000 and it was $250,000. So a little bit better rental value ratio. Um, but then, you know, 2012 came around in the Seattle market and, and the whole market in general was coming right back up. And I wasn't able to get anywhere clear um, near anything I would cash flow on the MLS. And then I was like, well, shoot, am I um, 
just going to get negative cash flow. That's <laughs> just the end of the road. Um, I think I was feeling what many people are feeling like today, back in 2012, like the numbers right. just weren't working. So I searched around a little bit, went on the internet and, um, you know, saw people were buying these turnkey rentals and, uh, you know, parts of the country that, you know, you and I probably wouldn't hang out too much, but, you know, good secondary markets with robust economies, you know, like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, mm-hmm. Kansas City, places like that. So I just bought one and um, the numbers on that one were like, it was like 60 or $70,000. You know, you put down twenty $25,000 down payment. You try and keep five, 5,000 of CapEx, you know, just in the bank as reserves. And, you know, you cap the rents on that, I think was like seven to 800. So it was better than the 1% ratio. So, and so you were at, at the whole time you were still in Hawaii and oh, I was yeah, I was in Seattle at this time. I oh, lived, I okay. only recently moved back home to Got it. Year. Okay. Yeah. Because my question was, how did you do that? From you know, how did you do out of state investing at that point? Um, so you were you were pretty close to the investments then. Well, yeah, the first couple were were local in Seattle, but then mm-hmm. I became that remote investor, and you know, people are listening at home. The way I did it was. I just went on the internet, all the forms, and you know it's tough because most of the people are ninety percent of the people are there are salespeople trying to pick up referral checks here and there, which you know, you, you know, their advice is useless and very misleading. You have to go out there and you have to find the other passive investors or LPs, limited partner types, and you have to ask them where are they going to, but you have to do it in a tactful manner where you're not just like that asshole who just keeps asking, well, who are you using? Who's your property manager? What insurance company are you using? You know, that's just, that's just not going to get you anywhere. I mean, yeah, people, people will help, right? Because people are good people and, you know, most people in this space are, but, you know, build a relationship, right? Um, That's, that's my input, you know, and people will, people will be glad to help you, I think. Right. And I think uh, building relationships with the right type of people, those who can actually help and provide value, um, is is key in real estate in, in in general in life and business, but but especially when it comes to real estate. Um, so, and I want to go back to that point where it, when you basically decided to shift to secondary markets, were you at all concerned about? investing in a in a foreign in a market that you're unfamiliar with or a market that is not a you know Seattle is, is a pretty strong market secondary markets behave very differently when it comes to appreciation and of course also cash flow population is different um what was going on in the back of your you know in in your mind at that point when you're kind of trying to make the decision to move to a secondary market yeah, I mean, the, I think the biggest thing is like it's remote, right? You're not going to go and visit this property. I mean, you can, but that's just not a good business move because it's just not, it just costs a lot of money. I mean, you're going to burn up half of the year's cash flow just taking a flight out there and buying a hotel for the night. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think secondary markets, I mean, the first of us, shock and awe, right? Like, man, I can buy a $100,000 house that rents for $1,000 out here. Um, you know, being from Hawaii and living in Seattle, I mean, that's just unheard of, those type of rental value ratios and pricing. 
and then it's just you know it's a di- different world out there too. You know, I mean, it's, it feels like that you're in the 1980s culturally. A lot of these places, um, and you know, you're working with vendors, and you know, you just have to. It, it's a different skill set to be a remote investor, and not to say that it's easier or harder, but it's just different. And how did you build your team? How did you find the uh, the property management company? Um, how did you, uh, and also, you know, how did you meet and build relationship with brokers? Because that's that's uh, an art of it of in itself as an investor. Yeah, I mean, I think the the brokers, you, you kind of just got to get lucky. I mean, in the beginning, it's very difficult because you don't even know what you're you don't know mm-hmm. as an investor, and you're trying to communicate this to a broker that may or may not know what you're looking for. I mean, most brokers out there, 90, 95% of them, they don't know what a good rental is. They don't know what the good floor plans are for that type. They don't know if it should be carpet or or LVT in the living rooms or bedrooms. Um, they'll find you a nice house. Well, some of them can do that. But what you're really looking for is that robust rental property that's going to stand the test of time and get you those good rents um, per the, the price because that's it. what you're paying for. Right, right. And then, and then, so in your first investment that was actually out of state, let, let's talk a little bit about that investment. Um, what was the property? Where was it? And how did you feel when you were walking the property for the first time? Um, I, that was in Birmingham, Alabama. I, I went through actually a turnkey company in the first, the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, never, never went and visited a property. I just built a relationship with a guy and I felt comfortable. And I was like, well, I'm here to buy more of these things if it works. So, Hey, you know, you know, you, I'll put my trust in you and I'll, you know, we'll do it again. It was kind of my feeling and what I communicated over. And I think that's a, you know, that's a thing you need to communicate to all your, I don't call them team members, you know, make no mistake. They, these guys are vendors. They're not like, this is not a syndication where you have general partners and you're teaming up. This is vendors. So you treat them like vendors. You treat them with respect, you professionally, but it's just like an employee, Right, you know, you set your expectations and you keep them accountable, mm-hmm. and you follow up. I think that's right. you know, I, I think people, I hear it all the time. I oh, building your team, you know, no, we're not trying to build friends here. If they're not performing, you have another person in the wing, and you fire them, and you get the next guy. I mean, it sounds harsh, but hey, that's your hundred thousand dollar asset out there. Right, and were they performing on that specific uh, investment in Birmingham? Yeah, I mean, I I went with another property management company, and then I switched because they were they're kind of gouging on price, and that's the problem as a remote investors, you just get gouged, especially these days because you might be um, you know know how much these things cost, and you know because you've had prior experience, but if ninety five percent of their other customers are quote unquote Californians or unsophisticated remote investors, you know, they don't care. You know, they know that you guys pay, you know, we as investors pay stupid prices and we don't have any, any other recourse or any other options. Mm -hmm. So I chose to find a little smaller mom, Paul outfit that um, wouldn't gouge me there. But 
you know, there's pros and cons going with a big property management company and a smaller property management company, I think. Got it. Um, and then in that investment, uh, was it a multifamily? That, that was single family. And I went all single, single family because I knew, you know, talking with other, um, you know, professionals, you know, this, the single family thing was going to be a very, you know, step stone to bigger stuff. And the thinking was, the exit strategy was being, we're going to sell this stuff in three to five years, most likely to sell it, to go into syndications. Mm-hmm. So I focus on single families because you could possibly sell those to retail. Whereas the duplexes, triplexes, quads, although they make more money on paper um, and they look all, you know, all the multiple roofs and you're more diversified, blah, 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 blah the exit strategy and they'll suck. So, you know, in three years, you're looking to sell it. Five years, looking to sell it. You're, you're looking to sell it to a cheapskate investor. And we all know how fun and dandy that is. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So basically starting with that turnkey company opened the road for you, opened the path, and you start a new path as an out-of-state investor. Um, how how are things going today? Do you still keep investing remotely with with the same company? Well, I mean, shortly after I... I you know, that first one worked, right? And mm-hmm. I sold the two Seattle properties and I bought, I did a 1031 exchange and I bought nine, which was a little crazy. And then I had everything all, you know, got, I had 11 of these things and they were just kind of off and rolling. And that was kind of what I did for about a year, a couple of years. And that was kind of when I made the switch to, you know, being an LP in a syndication. And what made you make that transition from an active investor who is actively buying properties out of state to um, an LP investor that is basically investing, you know, with other syndicators. Was that easy to make that transition? Um, it was actually, but it's, it's, it's a little different. You're not vetting deals, you're vetting people. Right. So, I mean, I joined, I, I joined an apartment mentoring group, you know, paid the 25, 30 grand. I forgot how much it was, but because um, I wanted to be like an apartment lead, right? Because I was like, yeah, you know, this, this, these single family homes, they're nice, but it's just not scalable. I mean, with 10, 11 rentals, I was getting an eviction or two a year and a semi big catastrophe four times a year, which is easy, right? I mean, it's, you're managing the manager, it's not that bad. But all for what, like a measly $3,000 passive a month. I mean, which is great. Don't get me wrong. But I wanted like more like 10. Mm-hmm. So if you just do the math. I needed 30 rentals. And then now you're talking an eviction every other month and a big catastrophe multiple times a month. And it's just, hey, man, this is not scalable, right? And then now you get to the point where you're kind of looking at your balance sheet and you're like, well, I'm predicting in five years instead of 80 LTV in my loans, I'll be like 60 or 50. And then my return on equity is going to be very low. What do I do? I can't sell these things. It's just Mm -hmm. making the the brokers rich with all their commissions. So I had to look elsewhere. And that's kind of why I joined the the apartment uh, investing um, bandwagon. So tell me about that. Tell me about that first investment. Um, How did you find these guys? How did, and how did you vet them? Well, I, I went on a little bit different way. Like I, I thought I was going to be the, the guy, right? I'm, I was going to be the guy 
starting that 100, 200 unit apartment, um, I was going to be the lead, right? So I did all the steps necessary, analyzed 200 deals the right way, and um, did all the trying to find a deal, build relationships with brokers. Um, but I realized it was just, it was not going to happen for me because I lived in Seattle. And to be an apartment lead, I feel like you have to, you have to travel at least once every couple months, let alone right. every month at least, right? That's um, right. And yeah. I was, I was taking a little bit of like a self-awareness check. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about self-awareness. And I was like, well, why the hell am I doing this? Like, I don't even like really like, I don't really like real estate. You know, I like the, I like the money that comes from it, but I don't quite, quite enjoy it. So what oh, the heck yeah. am I doing here? You know, you, you have to be passionate to be a syndicator. It's it, it it's your entire life. It's a hundred and fifty percent. It occupies your your entire your thoughts, your you know your relationships, exactly. everything because it's it's a very in. I, I I mean I personally think it's great. I love it, and that's what I do. Um, but you really have to commit to do it, and you really really have to love it. If you don't like it, if you if you're not feel passionate about it, it's it can be really tough. And uh, I know some syndicators that invest in their backyard, which means that they don't you know, they don't need to travel as often. But even then, you have to go and meet investors. You have to um, you know go and and travel every once in a while for conferences and events. Um, I personally, I I live in California and I invest in Texas and Florida. I fly out every. I'm there every two three weeks. That's part of the that's part of the game. You absolutely right. You can't really, you know, um, it depends on you can't really do it if you're not enti- if you're not seriously in love with real estate. Right. That's yeah, right. absolutely right. And and I think like people need to understand that there's there's two roles here. I mean, I think the the term syndicator gets thrown out a little bit too much. There's two roles. There's the operator, I mean, that's the person that I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be the guy, you know, finding the deal and then going and managing the, the, the property management company and make, being the boots on the ground. I'm okay with all the other stuff, um, you know, parts of the syndication that work, but that was the stuff I didn't really want to do. So I kind of took a step back and I was like, all right, well, let me just be a limit partner because now I know what a good deal is and I know a lot of good people doing this. I'm just going to like, you know, I was like, well, if I just make 15 to 20% not doing anything or sitting in the coach seats, well, why don't I just do that? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I was like, I was looking at my money and I was like, okay, if it grows at this rate, I'll be on the flight path to where I want to be. So why would I take on all this extra, um, the stress and risks to make more when I really don't want to, I really don't need that extra money. Mm-hmm. So it was right. more about, you know, figuring out what I wanted and, you know, beginning with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. And and how did you meet the first syndicator that, that you invested with? Um, I mean, just kind of going to, you know, like, like how you're saying, right? You got to fly to these places and you got to meet, you know, go to conferences, meet these guys. Um, and then the important thing, just like when I was buying those turnkey rentals, it's not about talking to the syndicator, in that case, the, the turnkey providers. That's a waste of time, I think. I mean, they're all going to tell you. They all got this thing memorized in the dog and pony show. You want to go out there and you want to increase your limited partner, your peers, 
that network because what you're going to do is you're going to cross-reference uh, track records of people. I mean, I don't know. There's no website out there that really tells you, um, you know, who's good. I mean, if there was, it'd probably be very, uh, it'd probably be like, you know, a lot of uh, people paying money to get rated highly on it. Like how like, oh, yeah. all the fake reviews, <laughs> right? Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. So you met them at one of the conferences? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I think, I think, the more importantly, you gotta like in, you gotta interview and, and build connections with like all these other LPs because it's super scary. Like you're gonna write this check, you're gonna give this dude fifty grand, and he could just r- run off. Like isn't this how Ponzi schemes start, right? Like, <laughs> so how did you vet them? You um, met them, and they look, you know, they look decent, and they they came across, you know, probably they came across honest, and you feel that you can trust them. But what do you do to make sure that? your first impression is actually right, that, that your gut feeling um, is actually correct? I, I think, oh, of course, like, you know, you go around, you build your network and you say, who do you, have you used in the past? And, you, you know, you don't go to somebody new. Get, go off, you know, get off three or four referrals. And if they all kind of point to the same person, hey, it's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And I th- don't think you'll learn until you're actually in it. So... Try and find some, you know, a few people that are vouch for one guy and just go. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough because I knew how to analyze the deals. I was like, hey, you know, I, I guess I trust you. But, you know, let me let me see the, P, the profit and loss statements, the T12, the rent rolls. And uh, let me see how you're underwriting this thing. What are you using for occupancy? What are you using for your cap rate? What are you using for your cap rate reversion? Um, let me see if you're, you know if how I understand it is aligning how you're unwriting it and not just, you know, a guy who used to do good deals and now just blowing smoke. Mm-hmm. People. Yeah. made me feel comfortable. So, mm-hmm. Hey, you just got to do it. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I totally agree that LPs should definitely look into the financials and, and kind of, um, uh, you know, look at the projections in the model and, and, ask themselves questions it, are the assumptions correct are they reasonable um but you know I, I feel i think that many lps don't take the time to really dive into the numbers um and you had some experience running the numbers and and analyzing deals beforehand so you knew what what to look for what would be your advice to someone who is um who's basically who wants to work with an lp they vetted the deal the, the, the sorry who wanted to work with the, with a um a syndicator, they've vetted the syndicator, and but they don't have that background that you had with analyzing deals. Well, I'd say go get it, right? I mean, pay somebody like $500 or $300 an hour and just learn the dang thing. Mm-hmm. Because I, I feel like 90% of LPs out there don't really know how to do it. Because they ask weird questions like, what is the general partner LP split? What is the pref? And that's not what the deal is. Yes, that's what like the splits are and how the, the money is paid. But the deal is what are the assumptions that are in? What are you mm-hmm. using for the rent increases per year? What are you using for the expenses increasing per year? What are you using for occupancy, cap rate, cap rate conversion? You know, those are the big ones. And it's funny because like all these executive summaries you get as these pitch decks, they have nothing really in there that tells you if it's a good deal. The, the T12s aren't in there. The rent rolls aren't aren't in there. 
it has all these like garbage tables of what the comp sales were. I don't really know why that is applicable. But people always are wondering, oh, if it's 80-20, you know, GP, LP split, it's a good deal. That has nothing to do with anything. Who cares if you're getting 80% of like zero if it's a bad deal? I, I could not agree more. I think, uh, I mean, it definitely, the most important thing is is your returns, right? So if if someone is getting, if it's a 90-10 split, but you're getting 10% IRR and 5% cash on cash versus a 70-30, but that's a better deal and you're getting eight and a half cash on cash and and uh, 16 or 18% IRR, it's a totally... I mean, it doesn't really matter how much, what's the split. If if the bottom line is that you're going to end up with a, you know, in that example, with a better deal and you're going to end up, you know, your your money is going to be, uh, you know, you're going to put it in, in a better use in, in this, uh, on, you know, on the second deal. Well, that's great. So so you vetted the the syndicator. Um, how did it work with that first, uh, with the first deal with them? Um, it That particular one was a little rocky coming out the gate. Mm, um, but it happens from it. time to time, right? I mean, when I, before I went into it, I mean, I, you know, you got to tactfully do it, but you basically have to have people, you know, how many deals have you got into, you know, maybe tell me a little bit like the typical, you know, typical returns, you know, did anybody, did, you know, some of them will sell early in, you know, three years instead of five and, you know, for 120%, so like 40% a year, right? Those are great, but those aren't typical. Um, and then you, you know, kind of say, Hey, you know, was there any bad ones? And of course there's always inevitably bad ones. So in my head, when through my sampling and networking, I had this like bell curve. I was like, okay, whatever, 60% of these deals are going to kind of perform as performa the, 80 to 100% return in five-year deal. But then the tail ends, um, you know, you're going to have some winners and sort of losers. I mean, I think that the, the cool thing about syndications is, or value-add syndications is at least you got cash flow coming in in case, case of a recession. And it's value-add, you know, forced appreciation. And a bad deal is not like a single-family bad home, bad deal where like, you know, a tenant moves out and now I got to pay 200 not two hundred twenty thousand dollars. I had one of those, and you know you lose your you lose a lot of your own money. These ones, it's kind of like a bad deal. It's like, well, you know, yeah, we we have we held it for six years, and when I got like sixty percent, like, well, you got ten percent return on your money. I mean, and you didn't have to overlay huge chunks of cash here and there. Um, I, I think there's a big capital preservation um, part with this, and it's just a lot more smoother. Unlike investing on your own, like, you know, flipping houses or doing all these more active things, trading time for money, the returns aren't as explosive. I mean, you're going right. to hum around in the 20, the high teens, the 20% right. range. So and, it's a um, you mentioned earlier that the first investment with a sponsor was Rocky. What, what happened there? Yeah, so it was just a bad um, property management company had to get replaced because they just were sucking a little bit. But um, when I went there, there was like gang violence a little bit and kind of weird gang violence. Like they would do be there during the day when everybody was at work. So there had to be some use of like, um, you know, live, bo- live guards, which oh, was wow. kind of 
kind of crazy. It's a big expense, right? An un unforeseen expense. Yep. Um, so here you are. You got to use security guards at strategic times of the day because if not, that'll just like you know, just you're just spending too much money on that stuff. So you know, put it in the middle of the day for a few hours. You know, kind of batten down. Um, you know, show the culture that things are changing, and then get as people fill up again. You know, you flush out the bad tenants. You you mm-hmm. put all the good tenants in there. It gets a little more crowded, and you know the culture starts to change. The hoodlums go to the next property because yours is just not where they want to hang out. Yeah, that's that's it's too much yeah. for them at this at this point. Where was the uh, the property? This was in Oklahoma City, so it's、Got、more it. of a you know it's the more it was more of like a yield play. I mean, Oklahoma、mm-hmm. City is not too. Not the hottest market, right? So you know you probably want to underwrite eighty-eight to hundred, eighty-eight to ninety percent occupancy as far as it's. It's not like Dallas. Well, Dallas. yeah, ab- absolutely, yeah. 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 Was it a multifamily building? Yeah, yeah.、Mm-hmm. So how how many units? That one was one hundred seventy. One hundred seventy. And how did you learn? So so you meet the sponsors, you you vet them. You get into this deal in Oklahoma City, and at one point, did you understand that something is not is not working right? Was that communicated by the the sponsors, or did you just go there and happen to understand what was going on 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 the、uh, on the property? Well, I mean, I it, it's kind of funny the things that get communicated and the things that act, actually happening are always two different things.、Um, They shouldn't be, right? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's like to be understood, right? Like, I mean, I don't tell my boss at work every little thing, obstacle that I'm doing. He's gonna think I'm an idiot, right? And I can't handle it. Like, nobody would do that, right? Why would you want to do that unless you want your boss breathing down your neck at every single move and questioning you?、Um, yeah, but I think with the with the more serious issues, you do want to communicate that with the investors. So, how how did you find out about what was happening there? Um, through other people. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah.、Other、everybody、LPs? knows. Everybody knows each other. Everybody kind of knows what's happening,、mm. and um, but、that's、then again, you know, that's that's kind of me, right? Because you know, I'm I'm plugged right in there. But for most people, they don't they don't care, and and I'm seeing where like I'm I'm getting the point. I'm about like eight deals now. I don't really like. I can see how you wouldn't even read the monthly reports. Yeah. Like just give me the two sentence executive summary, like what's how's the weather and like、yeah. where are we at where are returns are we tracking above target below target all that other stuff blah 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 I don't care, I can see how that that can happen like. <laughs> and, and the other people that you heard it from were they also involved with the deal or just people that happened to know what was going on?、Uh, a little bit of both. Yeah.、Mm. yeah. Interesting. How how did you feel when you found out what was happening? Um, I I I mean, I, my expectation was like things were going to happen, right? Um, I think you should go in a deal knowing that you could possibly lose your money,、mm-hmm. and that's exactly that's、right. why you diversify between different partners, different、right. leads, different markets, and you know, I would even say different asset classes. I mean, I mean, apartments are a great way to get started. It's very accessible because there's so many people doing it. Mm-hmm. But I, I would, I'm trying to get out of apartments nowadays and do other things, just because it's just not 
not smart to be all in one thing, even though it is, yeah. is, you know, apartments are great, right? Class B and C housing. Absolutely. Apartments. I mean, it's a no brainer, but you know, still. Just diversify. What, what happened with that, with that property after have you, are you still owning um, part of the, the deal as an LP or yeah, yeah. sponsor sell it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of on track. I mean, a lot of these deals, it's, I mean, I, I would say, you know, we still might hit our projections, likely still mm-hmm. will. Oh, that's um, good. You know, I mean, that's that's exactly why you underwrite those deals the right way. Conservatively. So yeah. 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 Well, that that was an interesting story. Thank you. Actually, we heard two stories. Um, how you how you made the transition between one core market to a secondary market and then how you made the transition, a second one, from being an active investor to a passive investor and what happened with your first investment. That was that was interesting. Thank you so much for for sharing your story. Uh, now, Lane, um, if you could look, um, how old are you, by the way? Uh, 32. You, 32. So you look awfully young. I can see you because we, we're having this video call. Um, so I just want to make sure you're in the right age to ask. Um, if you if you could give an advice, a piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? I would say um, figure out what you know, self-awareness, figure out what your highest and best use is. And for myself at the time, it was not flipping houses or wholesaling or doing any mm-hmm. active real estate stuff. It was just to grind it at work and make, make a salary. That was my highest and best use. Got it. So, Interesting. And where can people find you? Um, they can go to my uh, website, Simple Passive Cashflow dot com and then you know check out my podcast too i've been kind of doing it for a few years now and it's kind of more of like a journal i guess mm-hmm. what's the name of the podcast uh simple passive cash flow <laughs> so that's right that's right yeah. all right perfect well thank you lane so much for being on the show today and sharing your stories with me i really appreciate it um hope you have a good one yeah thanks ellie Okay, so in this episode, we learned that being an active real estate investor is not for everyone. Sometimes you can make the same amount of money or even more as a passive investor. Well, that's all for today, guys. You can find the episode's show notes on iTunes and on my website, www.elliepearlman.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my show on iTunes. This way you can stay up to date with the podcast. And next week, we'll have a new and fun episode about how a couple of investors who are also a couple in life, turned their apartment building into a police stakeout. Yes, a police stakeout. Don't miss that one. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.